1: i had a sit down at the four seasons in manhattan a meeting with darren dean and we started talking about bringing thierry in and that's the the first week and i'm this kid from williamsport pennsylvania that knows nothing
2: My name is Sebastian Alvarado, and I'm the host of this long-form interview-style podcast where each week I sit down with some of the most interesting and influential people involved in the game. The purpose of these conversations is to dig deep and get to know the person behind the title. In this week's episode, I sit down with Eric Stover, the Chief Operating Officer of the New York Cosmos. He's one of the most prominent sports executives in the country with a career spanning over 20 years. He takes us through his career journey from the humble beginnings in Pennsylvania, from the day he decided to pack the car and leave for an unpaid internship at the Meadowlands, to becoming the New York Red Bulls team president at only 35 years old, to where he is today, running and overseeing the cosmos. This is the amazing inside story of someone who has helped shape an industry and a game he had very limited knowledge of that day at the four seasons when he was set to negotiate an MLS deal for Thierry Henry. I hope you enjoy it Eric welcome to the coffee and football podcast
1: thank you for having me how you doing very good
2: since the theme of this uh, part is uh, coffee and football Mm -hmm. how do you drink your coffee
1: I don't drink coffee I had a traumatic experience back to Little League, Um, tried to chug hot coffee when I was 12 years old on a 95 degree day, thinking it was water. So I I don't drink coffee, I drink tea, Um, and unlike most Americans with a little bit of milk in it.
2: For someone who doesn't know you or doesn't have much of a relation to soccer, how would you introduce yourself and what it is that you do?
1: Uh, That's a good question. It's kind of hard to explain sometimes. Um, I'm the Chief Operating Officer for the Cosmos. Uh, Pelé is the honorary president, so he's he's got that title. Uh, and at the end of the day, everything flows through me, including the sporting side, to our board of directors, our owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything from ticket sales to marketing to legal fees and player transactions, everything ultimately comes through me. The way we we try to run it with the Cosmos is Giovanni Savarese is our head coach and sporting director. Wonderful, outstanding guy, um, passion and vision for where we want to take this club. And so, when it comes to player transactions, for the most part, he's he's responsible. Consults with me on things. Uh, at the end of the day, we're both responsible for the budget, uh, but he handles most contract negotiations. When we get to a different level. With something like Raul, uh, with signing Raul, he did all the legwork, the recruiting, uh, established sort of the parameters of where this would go, and then it became my job to convince the board that, you know, this is a good move. And quite often with those bigger deals, at the end of the day, the contract negotiation will fall to me. Um, so it's a bit of the, the football side of things, the soccer side of things, and, and all the business it sounds
2: like it's quite a bit of multitasking. How do you grasp that? How do you remain focused and how do you prioritize when you have so many things that come
1: funnels through you? Well, I think the most important thing in any business is hiring good people. Uh, we've done that very well. The sporting side, I would put our coaching staff and and support staff up against anybody in this country. They're outstanding, every one of them, from Gio to Carlos Yamosa, Aleco, Memo, the goalkeeper coach. Luke Susano um, has really grown into his technical director position. So, so many people, and I'm forgetting others, but so many people are as good as you get in this country, and they've done a great job. So, hiring good people is the most important thing, letting them do their job. Uh, we've tried to do that in the front office and, and in the sporting department. I think it's worked in a lot of ways, but it is quite a challenge here in New York. Um, there's two other professional soccer teams here, uh, their budgets are much larger. Their staffing is much larger. Uh, so we're asked to be relevant in that situation with fewer people and less money. So it, there's a lot of sort of supporting the staff, keeping them motivated, keeping them focused that, that becomes really important. You know, we, if we make a mistake, we feel it more than anybody else yeah. might. And then you've got all the other sports and all the other things you can do in the city. So, And salary levels in this city as well that you need to compete with. Yeah. And that's, that's been a challenge for us. Uh, we can only afford to do, to do so much. And, you know, the funny thing is relative to the rest of the NESL, we have the largest staff and the highest payroll, but it doesn't compare to any of the other professional teams that are in this market, not even close. So there's a lot of work and it's a passion project for everybody that's working with us.
2: Take me through a day in the life of Eric Stover. What time do you get up? What types of routines do you have? Are there any specific readings that you do every morning? And from there on, once you get into the office,
1: it tends to be a long day. Uh, I live in Jersey, actually, and uh, I guess we'll get into this a little bit later. But for me, I have to get up very early, around six o'clock in the morning. I'm normally in the car around six thirty. Irony is, I I park in Harrison, New Jersey, next to Red Bull Arena, and I take the path over and subway up to Midtown. Uh, I do that about three or four days a week, two or three days a week. I'm out in Long Island um, doing various things. We've got a sales and marketing office there, so it's a, a long morning for me normally. Um, get in generally around eight o'clock, and you know, normally what I do is a cycle around. Soccer websites, Big Apple Soccer, Ivis Empire Soccer. See what everybody's talking about. Same thing on social media. What are some of the things that you keep your your
2: eyes on specifically?
1: It all starts with Cosmos. It all flows through us. Um, you know, we have a legacy to live up to, and as we were just talking, it you know we have fewer people to manage it. So I'm always very predictive protective of that legacy. Uh, it's a privilege to work for this organization. I've gotten to know Clive Toy really well, who helped build this thing, and what his point of view was in naming the team and choosing the colors and uh, selecting the players. Uh, and we don't want to damage that in any way. So protecting that legacy is very important. And paying attention to what people are saying about us is equally important in helping shape that that public perception. It's very much out of my personality to be public person, I'd rather be behind the scenes, but this job requires it. When I was at Red Bull, it was the same thing. And interestingly enough, both organizations at Red Bull, uh, Mr. Matoschitz, owner of the energy drink, uh, was, was not forward facing at all. You know, the, the fans wouldn't know who he was. Uh, Seamus at the Cosmos, managing partners is definitely out in the public more, but still pretty much behind the scenes he's certainly not a chairman like daniel levy is you know in the front of the club at, at tottenham so uh for me it's a big responsibility to look at things from the point of view of ownership and in, in the two clubs i've worked for
0: mm-hmm.
2: obviously now we're into the fourth season since the since the rebirth in in 2013 and it's been tremendously successful having won you know, the championship two out of two out of three years, essentially. What do you as a club do differently from, from many of the other clubs? And, uh, and where I'm going with this is regardless of how many big players you have or how good of a squad you have, it's extremely difficult to put a team together and make them succeed from, from day one. So are there any things that you see that you guys have done differently for it to, be activated that fast and really working.
1: Yeah. I, I, a lot of that, the credit goes to geo for the success. Obviously you're the head coach. Um, you should get credit when you win games. You certainly get the blame when you lose games, but both of us share it. We're very different people, but we shared the same vision. And when we st- restarted this team is that we had to live up to this legacy and the legacy is a big help. It opens up the conversation. people, when they hear Cosmos, they're at least going to listen to you. Yeah. If they hear another name, they, they may not return the phone call. Uh, so that that's a help. But then it's also a burden in having to live up to that legacy. So the way we've tried to tackle that is on an interpersonal level. You, you hear a lot of players, our players, talking about how it's a family, and that's not by accident. Gio is very open with them. He talks to them every day uh, about his expectations wants to know how he's, how they're doing with their, with their family. What's their life like back at home? If they're a foreign player cares for them deeply. If there's a player that we have to let go for one reason or another, we're trying to, to help that player transition. So you hear that a lot. What Nico Cronchar, who we recently signed, I was reading some articles this morning, again, following the Cosmos news. Uh, I think it was a piece in the Guardian and was talking about how it, immediately resonated that it, it was a tight group and he felt welcomed and it was a family. Um, and I've been in this sports business for 20 years, not just soccer for the last eight or so, but worked with three NFL teams, NHL, NBA, major colleges. And I've never seen anything like this organization. There's always a jerk within the team, sometimes quite a lot, uh, difficult personalities within the front office, uh, so for what we were, we've we been able to do is is create an organization where people care for each other and and you see that on the field. I think we've gotten so many points in the last five minutes because there's this unified passion within the, the group that they don't want to let each other down and they put it all on the line. And again, that's, most of the credit goes to Geo for that.
2: I want to get back to um, what you're doing today and, and, and the cosmos, obviously. But I want to rewind the tape and, and take it from the beginning. Uh, where'd you grow up?
1: Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Town of thirty thirty five thousand 35,000 people in the Susquehanna Valley. No one's ever heard of soccer before. That's Little League is king. Little League baseball is king.
2: If I want to get to know you on a more personal level, is there anything I need to know about that place?
1: Well, certainly it was a really safe place to grow up, um, you know. I had to be home when the street lights went off and nobody had to worry about you other than that. Living here in New York is a very different place. Um so my growth to being able to live and survive in here was was a bit of a journey. It certainly wasn't easy coming to the to New Jersey New York area for the first time. You know, it was small town roots, everybody sort of knew who you were. Sports was Ingrained in everything we did. I played football, baseball, basketball, American football, um, and didn't really know anything about soccer. I didn't have any clue about the sport. I didn't, you know, I knew of the name Pelé, but didn't know anything about him. Even the height of the Cosmos in the late '70s. So I was, you know, uh, seven, eight, nine years old when the the Cosmos were a huge story, but they weren't in the, in uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Um, we knew nothing about it. And so to, to come to the Meadowlands, start working there start hearing the story, that's what started to light the, my fire for this sport. What did your parents do for a living? Uh, see, my mother is a office manager at a radio station and, uh, my father was basically retired, but he, for most of my childhood was in insurance. It was a pretty modest upbringing.
2: What's uh, an impor- important lesson that you've learned from from your parents that's something they carry with you today?
1: That's a very good question. Um, I don't know. I think I had a, a desire to get out of there. I went to Florida State University, just about as far away as I could go, sight unseen. So I'm not sure really where that independence came from. Um, you know, when you grow up in a small town, it's te- people tend to be pretty conservative. It was very homogeneous. You know, there the restaurant scene wasn't <laughs> wasn't too diverse. used to call it a scene. Right? <laughs> yeah, the big big story was when Taco Bell came to town. Um, so, you know, it, I'm not sure. You know, the the importance of uh, of schooling and education was was driven home. The Of importance of competing and um, taking things seriously was certainly driven home. I I remember I quit uh, baseball one year and, you know, my father was very upset with me over it. Uh, So some of those things I learned the hard way, but uh, they did a nice job raising me.
2: Did you have any um, specific
1: dreams? No, not really. Uh, You know, I just... I wanted to be an athlete, Um and my problem as an athlete, I think, helped teach me how to be a better executive. I would work hard. I would get better. Basketball was my favorite sport. I would get better. People would comment on how much I grew from one month to two, but I didn't maintain it. They're the greatest athletes in the world. When they get to a level, they don't plateau. They just keep pushing, they keep pushing, they keep pushing. So in my teens you know, we're into, well, really late teens and, and to look back on the opportunity to have played a sport in college, let's say, and I let that go uh, because I didn't work hard enough and I wasn't determined enough to, to do that. While I was in college, I looked back at that and I realized I made a pretty, pretty huge mistake. Not that I had the opportunity to be a professional athlete, but when you're an athlete and you spend all day, every day doing that, and then it's gone and you realize you're never really going to get it back, you know, you're, 20 years old, junior in college, whatever it is, and, you know, you you look back, like, I'm never going to really play for a meaningful team for a a trophy ever again. You know, that was a pretty important lesson for me when I was in college. Um, I was an advertising major. I didn't really like it. Realized that my passion was sports, and it just clicked that, all right, I'm not going to be a catcher for the New York Yankees. It's not happening. Um, But there's jobs in sports. Someone's yeah. running the building, someone's marketing the team. To, to be honest, I hadn't really thought about it. And I shifted in college and started to focus on, all right, how do I take marketing communications, advertising what I was learning in college and use that as a springboard in some way to get into sports.
2: And what was your first job after that?
1: So um, I went to Florida State for two years, then Penn State. It clicked at Penn State that, you know this you know this revelation happened so I I got an internship at the Bryce Jordan Center at Penn State before it opened it was a hole in the ground I was working as a marketing intern and then after graduation uh, trying to figure out what my next step was and I just started looking around I knew I wasn't a natural salesman it's not my personality to cold call and try to sell something uh, and as luck would have it, I called the Meadowlands out of nowhere looking for a job and the,
2: so you just put in like a cold call. And-
1: yeah, just a cold call. And everything in my life changed on that call because literally five minutes before I called the director of human resources had come from a meeting and the CEO at the Meadowlands said, we need a thousand volunteers for the men's final four in 96. And I was the first person to call and went in for an interview. Basically, it was an internship slash volunteer. So it was a, a volunteer of volunteers, you know, I was going to co- help coordinate getting those thousand people in. Did the interview, they didn't want to hire me because they weren't going to pay me. I came from very modest background, I had no money. Um And I had to convince them to give me the chance. And I lived on my credit card for a while. And ran up dead. I don't advise anybody to do that, <laughs> uh, but it worked out for me.
2: So you moved to, you made the move, moved to Jersey somewhere? Yeah,
1: or? yeah just uh, picked up from State College, Pennsylvania, got in my old beat up Jeep and drove to, I think, Belleville, New Jersey at a studio apartment next to a hospital. Literally paid my way on a credit card, rent and food. Uh, and about, I don't know, five, six months into that, I got a an hourly job in the arena and operations that what was continental airlines arena now eyes center now a, something they're going to tear down eventually
2: and then from there on what were the what were the steps and and like the positions that you then took within the organization
1: so the first paid job i was uh you know hourly helping on the loading dock with deliveries and uh filling in uh on the operations side for events it was basically the go-to person during an event to pass on a message it wasn't any kind of management role um and then more responsibility within arena operations uh, some people were out for one reason or another um i started working double shifts doing the changeover, well, running an event, so a Devils game, and then running the changeover into a Nets game overnight off that, that next day and then back, you know. So it, it, it was trial by fire. Um, some brilliant people, some of the best in this business worked in that complex. It was, uh, you know, Giant Stadium, the arena, the racetrack. There was no busier sports complex in the world at the time. Uh, and learned a lot in a short amount of time moved up through arena operations took a job in college athletics working both buildings Jimmy V Classic kickoff classic things like that uh and then a position opened up in the stadium and went over to be sort of the right hand man of a new general manager at Giant Stadium uh was there for for 5 years at the stadium and that's really where my love for this sport came about. But hear the stories about the Cosmos and the Rolling Stones having parties in the stadium club with jacuzzi's and women and booze and everything everywhere and, uh, Studio 54. And then around that time, uh, Charlie Stilitano had left the, the Metro Stars, started Champions World and started bringing big clubs to Giant Stadium and that that was the big trigger we had manchester united roma we had sold i think like 40000 tickets advance around what year is this this is uh 2000 i think somewhere right around there and um we we had sold 40000 during the di- uh the lead up and then we sold over 30000 walk up it was insane people were still buying tickets and coming in and filling up the upper tier into the second half so I saw the passion of that for the first time. And as a sport, watching Jets-Giants games, whatever, there's obviously a lot of passion. People care about it. But this was a different level. Um, and Rude Van Nistelrooy scored an incredible goal. Just insane goal. And I, it, I just was like, the best athletes in the world are playing this sport. They're not playing football, baseball, or basketball, or hockey. Best athletes around the world are playing this. And they started to pay more attention to it and watch it more. And that not only that understanding that, that suddenly clicked for me as a, a sport to follow, it also clicked as a business. It became clear to me pretty quickly that it was eventually going to take off in this country. And I, when I went to San Diego to be the general manager at Qualcomm Stadium, I took that experience with me. And one of the things I'm most proud of there, we brought, uh, excuse me, the first... Um, First soccer game there since the MLS All-Star game that was a huge failure. Uh, We scheduled uh, Mexico-Venezuela my first year there, and that was from my MLS Connections people I knew. Uh, It was a a soccer market, but Mm -hmm. no one was trying anything there. And we almost sold out the stadium on a Wednesday night, meeting was friendly. Venezuela brought their C-team. And we would have sold out, but the traffic was so bad. People were parking on the highway, leaving their car and and walking into the stadium. We ended up with like sixty two out of sixty six thousand. It was a great night, and it was funny for many of the writers, the typical NFL writers that you know the the newspapers there in in San Diego. They they didn't get it. Like they were told to cover this game, they didn't get it. So if you read the articles, the first three paragraphs that they wrote before the day started. Was why is this a big deal? Who cares about soccer? This is dumb. Um, and then the stadium fills up and they're there every game for a Chargers game and they, the passion of the Mexican fans and, and how loud that stadium was for that game. The rest of that article is, wow, this is, I get it now. I see it. I don't understand the sport yet, but what a special night. I could only imagine what a meaningful game is like. So it's, It's been interesting because I've followed that curve of sport fan in this country that MLS, I think, was shooting for that over time that people would start to understand it more and own it the way it's supposed to be owned and not own it through the eyes of an NFL fan or or an NBA fan.
2: Right. After that stint, then you came back east and uh, to the New York Red Bulls. How did that come about?
1: Uh, So married my wife's from north jersey and uh if we were going to leave new jersey to go anywhere san diego was a great place but i knew she she wanted to come back at some point and i got a call from a friend who said you know the the red bulls are going to build a a new stadium and a training facility they're going to put a lot of money into to soccer and they're looking for somebody to help them do that would you consider coming back? I said, "Well, sooner than I wanted to, but I'm sure, I'd, I'd listen." So, Mark de Grandprey was the managing director at the time. He reached out. We had a, a few good conversations. It was kind of chaotic at that point. Uh, I remember the training facility lease being signed while I was in San Diego and really just starting the conversations with Mark. And it was exciting because all this stuff, as soon as Red Bull got involved, all this stuff started to move. You know, like it was really going to happen. Um, but it took a while. And after, I don't know, maybe nine months of talking, I came in for interviews and the rest is history.
2: What were your uh, first impressions when when you came in, sort of in comparison to to where you had been before? Because you had been with... Let's say more traditional American sports with structures that had been implemented you know years and years back and right. uh, and fairly established and uh, so what was what were your first impressions when you came in and what was the first thing that you set out to do
1: uh well it w- it was I had an interesting um, background with the MetroStars and then uh, ultimately Red Bull because I, I worked running Metrostars games for five years, so I understood. The sport much better uh, after those five years. We, had, as I said, we had the biggest clubs in the world, national teams come through. I started to learn more and more about it. I started to become more of a fan. I was watching World Cup, so I had a bit of a, a bit of a background, and more importantly, I knew the mistakes that were happening with the Metro Stars. I played a game on a Wednesday afternoon in ninety degree heat on on field turf and. Jimmy Conrad literally almost died on the field. So I was there. I saw that and, and, you know, how the fan base reacted to those kind of decisions and some of the other mistakes that, that were happening. The, ch- and also the challenges they had being a tenant in Giant Stadium, um, very much down the, the totem pole of who, who makes decisions. So,
2: how does it work? Is it, so is it the, the sort of the stadium management that kind of decides on that when they get the time, or does it come from, from like the MLS?
1: No, it's, so it's the stadium management. So the New Jersey Sports and Exposition Authority owned the stadium. Mm-hmm. Jets and Giants at the time were a tenant, but you know, they're the 800 pound gorilla. They chose dates and then Giant Stadium, the management there, you know, they're going to want to fill in dates. If you can do 10 Bruce Springsteen concerts in a summer. Then you're gonna book the ten Bruce Springsteen and then the Metro Stars have to schedule around that. And those kind of things in an eighty thousand seat stadium, which is ten times too big, really started to take its toll on the team. And you know, when they started ninety five, ninety what, ninety six, ninety seven, you know, twenty, twenty five thousand game was pretty good. The atmospheres are okay. By the time I left and came back, it was it was pretty Dire. Um, I have photos of Red Bull games, the supporter section literally had 25 people in it, you could count them in the photo in, in and so I had that background. I, I saw it, I knew the, that the, the supporters had a lot of trouble with stadium security. One of the first things they did was try to fix that. I think things that, you know, last couple of years at giant stadium got better there, but you know, when I was hired, I was hired to be a vice president of operations, not run the team. And Mark resigned about a month after, Mark de Grand Pre resigned about a month after I got there. And my wife was still in San Diego and I called her I said, okay, uh, Mark just resigned. So 98% were fine. You know, someone will come in and, you know, I should be okay. 1% I get fired, 1% I, I get promoted to his job. And that was, it was probably 0.1%. And she's like, okay, okay you know, eventually we sell the house, move back. During that time, two months goes, three months goes by. Red Bull eventually promotes me in the position. And, you know, that was the dream. When I started in this business, um, when I got that first internship, that first interview, I said to the director of HR, I said, I want to be a president of a team someday. And we eventually developed a, a very good friendship over time. And like a when I finally started in the internship, she said, do me a favor. Next time you interview for a real job, don't say you want to be a president. You sound like a little kid. <laughs> um, and that really stuck with me because I thought, well, you know, that's what I want to do. That's my dream. I, I get maybe how you say it is, is you know, you got to be careful with that. But um, that story always stuck with me. So when I got promoted into Mar- when I was promoted into Mark's position, I called, she was one of the first people I called and I said, well, I did it. And she didn't remember the story, but
2: uh, what, what age were you at the time?
1: Uh, so 35, I think somewhere around there. So it's a pretty rapid rise. Yeah. And happenstance and in the right place. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say it at the time because it wasn't going to get me any support, but I wasn't qualified for the position. I think I had a lot of the intangibles that, that were needed. But, you know, what I inherited there, it was a very volatile time. Um, the economy went in the tank immediately. The training facility for the Red Bulls got put on the back burner. They were going to stop construction on the stadium. We had to, had to fight with the board in Austria to keep it going. You know, understanding the pressure that, you know, when people stop buying your core product at the rate they were, Everything you're doing around the world starts, you start to, you know, have to pull back. Uh, But we had to really fight to keep the project going. And Claudio Reyna got hurt, basically didn't want to play anymore. He had to retire. We sold Josie out the door. I'll never forget my first week. I had a sit down at the Four Seasons in Manhattan. And again, I, I don't know anything about soccer, really. You know, I, I think I know a little, but for the most part, I don't know, don't really know anything about soccer. I have a sit down meeting with Darren Dean, Father David Dean uh, from the board of Arsenal. He's Thierry Henry's representative, and we start talking about bringing Thierry in, and that's the the first week. And I'm this kid from Williamsport, Pennsylvania, that knows nothing at the Four Seasons, starting to negotiate this contract, and you know. It's, that was the beginning of his first season at Barcelona, I think. So right after this huge transfer from Arsenal, it was right around that time. Um, uh, So all that's happening around me. And, you know, I, I don't have the chops for this job. I got to just fight my way through it. But we did pretty well. Um, The team that year ended up uh, going to the MLS Cup championship. Uh it was more by luck than happenstance. I guess it sort of mirrored my career. <laughs> Um, and then 2009, we, we were awful. I mean, really, really bad. A lot of that in defense of the coach and, um, sporting department it was a terrible schedule because it was the last year of Giant Stadium and, uh, we play five games in a row on the road and then come back and squeezing four four games in three weeks at home. It just wasn't a six, uh, recipe for success. And, uh, one thing I learned in that process is there, there is a fact that coaches lose locker rooms I've never seen anything like that before or since um and unfortunately Juan Carlos lost the locker room and it was it was pretty rough front office the entire you know the fan base it was i I hopefully I never have to go through that again I mean we won before it's, I, and and Red Bull wouldn't fire him I don't know why they just wouldn't do it um it didn't matter what we said about you know, the locker room and the players that literally have quit. If somebody scored a goal, it was like they scored three. The game was over. They wouldn't let us fire him and he wanted to be fired. He actually cleared out his locker room one, uh, his locker one after one game. Uh, and I, you know, I called him and said, no, you're, you're still the coach. And eventually I convinced him to resign, you know, proud man. He didn't want to do that, but that was a way to get through the bureaucracy of what I was dealing with. So who who were
2: making those decisions? Was it from the from the Red Bull HQ at that point? Yes. Or, okay. Yeah.
1: So you know, managing director, I have all the responsibility. I'm the only person that anybody knows. But every major decision had to run through HQ in in Salzburg. And in this particular case, it was no, no, you can't do it. Uh, I'm now, not what sh- was
2: their uh, reasoning behind? it? I have it? no idea.
1: <laughs> Never got an explanation. Never. And. You know, eventually I figured out that if I could convince him to resign that we, it's really what he wanted. And at the end of the day, he just wanted to be paid out his contract. Not that he was quitting, but he knew there was no way back. So I was able to convince everybody that let's just do this. Richie Williams took over the team. We finished okay. Uh, avoided the worst record in MLS history, thank God. And, um, you know, then a lot of things changed after that.
2: When you say that, you know, the coach loses the the locker room, and these are things that we constantly read about in the big teams and in the media and so on. What does that really mean, and how does it typically happen?
1: Well, it's a general lack of belief and confidence in the coach. And since I've lived through it, I've seen it around other teams now around the world. I can't imagine it was as bad as ours. Um, you know, you have the subconscious version of this where players emotionally and intellectually want to believe that they're still playing as hard as they they can and they want to win but there's also another level to it where they maybe not intentionally sabotaging but they're clearly not putting the effort in and if you got them in a room one-on-one they would say yeah no i'm not working as hard in this sport in particular and in a competitive environment you you pull back a little bit you're going to get eaten alive um so the the watching it from the outside chelsea this past year was obvious having lived through it that he lost the locker room for whatever reason it was over and there was no way back there was no series of wins that was going to repair the relationship that's required so it can be subconscious or it can be almost sabotage and in our case um you know people were coming to me Basically saying you have to fire him, which there was I saw as a lot of disloyalty there um but there was really nothing I was powerless to to make the change until we figured out to you know ask him to resign um but you hear that you hear it from players, you hear it from former coaches talking about it. it's a very, very real thing,
2: yeah, and then how did you go about turning turning things around
1: well um you know, was not what we needed last year of giant stadium going into opening Red Bull arena. Um, and what Red Bull decided to do was they brought in, well, they, they made a lot of changes throughout soccer, their global, their global platform. Dietmar Beiersdorfer came in, uh, became the head of football globally and, Dietmar brought in Eric Soler to manage the sporting side. And then Eric hired Hans Baca. So I shifted to stadium and business. Um, not too involved with the, the team a little bit, but, uh, it was mostly Eric's responsibility. And, uh, Eric ultimately reported to, to Didi for everything Red Bull soccer. And we lived like that for, for a couple of years
2: you were there when the when the arena came up right um i'm interested in how, i mean what's what's the process in because it's a pretty big project and, and building an arena
1: well that one's uh you know a very good case study on on how to get something done or not done in in, in uh, new jersey politics so Nick Sikiewicz was involved for a long time in you know, a former uh, MetroStars GM, uh, AEG, and then Philadelphia Union. Uh, and for many, many years, they were trying to get clearance in New Jersey, taxpayer money to help build build the stadium. Um, at one point, it was in with a huge packet of, of projects, funding for an arena in Newark, funding for venues downstate, uh, it was it became very bloated, and at the and I think that um, McGreevy was the governor at the time. It, it became so big, so much money that the whole thing collapsed, and the the MetroStars, AEG were left sideways, um, no way forward to to really get this done. What what changed was. And they don't get enough credit for this. Red Bull came in and said, we'll build it. We're going to pay for all of it. Um, And at first, they were going to build it to the AEG multi-purpose stadium standards, you know, concerts and all that stuff. Eventually, Red Bull said, this isn't our vision, took AEG out and just plowed ahead and and built it. And they put a lot of money into this thing, more than anyone percentage-wise had ever done before for a venue. They paid for everything. Uh, even fronted the money for, for cleanup. There was a, a, a fund in, in, uh, New Jersey politics that if you were taking contaminated land, that if you cleaned it, you could apply for grants back to, to be repaid. Red Bull did that at, you know, another 15 million on top of the cost of construction. Uh, ridiculous nuisance lawsuits, uh, from local neighbors trying to gouge them. Uh, and they really stuck through that. When I started there, it was open field and we were uh, pouring foundations. Uh, so there a lot of people put a lot of time to get it to that point. And once you're in the ground and, and pouring foundations and you're going, there's, there's really no turning back. And that's when I took over.
2: And was that the, in terms of location, was that the, the first option or?
1: No. And, and funny, when I was in San Diego, Mark, uh, had called me and and was expressing reservations about the location about the deal um uh, there was some discussion about maybe doing a deal with the sports authority at the meadowlands find some acres there stay there just build a, a smaller stadium and i think for red bull fans that may have been a better solution there's only so much that that can get done in the location that it's that it's at it's very hard to get to I go through there every day, as I said. Um, good to see that the path is finally being renovated. That was originally intended to be done when Red Bull Arena opened. So we're already more than five years past schedule. That I think will be a huge help for the, for them uh, moving forward. There's only so much so many people you can carry on the path at the moment, uh, and getting out of there on the path after a big game is is difficult. When that station is done, it'll be. Much, much better. But if you're traveling by car, there's really not much that, that can be done there. Um, but as the as that town builds up, which is happening, a lot of apartment buildings are going in. They'll have a little more of a, a pull from your local neighborhood than having to draw from, you know, Westchester, North Jersey, Central Jersey, South Jersey, even into Pennsylvania. Uh, driving by car there is, is difficult. And I think for continued success, at least in the immediate term, uh, that stadium at the Meadowlands probably would have been better. But who knows what it'll be like in five or ten years? Then you know it might flip, and I'd say something different.
2: Just in in looking in in retrospect, I mean it's, and, and you were a big part of this in in building that that up in terms of in terms of attendance, sponsorships, and and everything else that that went into it. How did you go about? really building the attendance because the you know the team used to be at the very bottom in attendance and then ending up in 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 the top three four five somewhere
1: right so you know i think mls deserves a lot of credit over the last five to ten years they've done a great job with teams on the bottom fixing whatever's wrong and moving to the top probably the best example is kansas city Yeah, that team, you know, minor league baseball stadium, pitcher's mound in the middle of the field. It was an embarrassment to soccer. And now you look at them and you'd say that's one of the best run organizations for, for us at Red Bull, you know, that building was a sea change for the league. Everybody else was basically building glorified high school stadiums. They're, you know, stadiums in Texas football high school football much better than some of the first iterations of MLS soccer specific stadiums. So what Red Bull did was change everybody's point of view and nobody would criticize that building. If you're a fan sitting in a seat, you can't do it better. Um, so Red Bull deserves a lot of credit for that. I think the fact that, that you had a real soccer venue really changed uh, people's point of view about the team and the organization you know, so you have that natural bump. New building, people are people are going to come, uh, and then we followed up that year with bringing Thierry, Henry in and Rafa Marquez, in, and that was another shot in the arm uh, for the second half of the year. So you had the in the beginning, people were coming. There's a new building, um, and we we're actually playing pretty well. And then those guys come in, and there's more more pump around it, more pomp and circumstances, more excitement, and this is really happening finally. This excuse me, this team has changed um changed the way it does things. And then so we you know, we were able to really raise uh season ticket numbers to to a pretty acceptable level. I think think we finished the year averaging just shy of twenty thousand, which is a good first step. To be honest, I think and I said this the first week I started with Red Bull. I thought the stadium should have been twenty thousand and not twenty five and then we would have had more sellouts, which would have led to more demand. I think that was a, a mistake and one that, you know, still paying for now. But yeah, we did pretty well. And then going into the next year, we even increased season ticket uh, numbers more, which, you know, is unheard of. It always drops from the first year of a new building. Doesn't matter the sport to the second. But we were able to increase it. And a lot of that was bringing the MLS All Star game in, Manchester United. You know, we had to really, really push to get that, everybody to agree to do that, to put a huge team in a 25,000 seat stadium. And it, it did a lot for our business. It, it really helped us pick up our season ticket number, too.
2: But you mentioned briefly you were part of the, the negotiations with, uh, with players such as Thierry Henry, and, and then Rafa, was, uh, Rafa Marcus was brought in as well. What are the, the biggest challenges when you're in such negotiation and how does that negotiation
1: happen? Well, it certainly helped with Thierry because he really wanted to, to come to New York. And with, with the Cosmos now, we don't recruit and push players that, that don't want to be there. You don't want to be here. Fine. We'll, we'll move on. Uh, so Thierry really wanted to be there. And so I carried that relationship through Darren and, and we're good friends for, for years. Uh, finally got to the point where his time at Barcelona was, was done. You know, after that first year, I, I remember calling Darren. I'm like, well, you just won the trouble. I'm guessing he's staying at Barcelona. Yeah. 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 We got to wait. So he had one year left. And again, he really wanted to come. Uh, so that, that helps. And you find a number that works. Uh, I didn't actually finish off the negotiation. Didi and, and the folks in Salzburg picked it up. I had it, you know, to a point. It was about done, and they picked it up and let them finish it. Uh, I got yelled at a few times by Darren. <laughs> um, for what? It, you know, it just it got really hard. Um, he ended up with more money at the end but uh, uh, than where I was, but he wasn't happy about the process. And for Raph, I wasn't involved at all. It, the, the funny thing is... Uh, Didi wanted to sign Marcos Senna mm-hmm. badly. Uh, and I often wonder if we had signed Marcos, especially at that point in his career and, and not Rafa, what would have happened? But, uh, other folks wanted Marquez and, uh, we ended up with Rafa and he came in. He did well, but I wasn't involved in that, that deal, but also with Barcelona, another player they wanted to move on, uh, so they could refresh the team. Um, so I, you know, being smart, picking your spot—I I think helped there. And you know, most of these these players, when they're coming to the states, they they have you know an idea of what they want. If it's about money, then you're not coming to the cosmos, despite what people think about what we spend. Geo and I are very upfront with what we can do, um, and if that and it quite often has uh, led to conversations ending right away, and that, that's fine. We just. We don't want to lead a, a guy along thinking that he's going to get some kind of crazy money. Uh, so I, I think it's like any negotiation, having a strong understanding of what your point of view is uh, and what you're willing to do, but also understanding who's on the other side of the table. Have an idea of what they want, and then you can find common ground most of the time. To your
2: point, you've been in this situation a few times, both in Red Bulls and then with the Cosmos, obviously with Marcos Senna, with, with Raul... Uh, with that level of names, when you look at a player of, with a big name, how much of it is purely how good of a player he is and the fit he has to the team versus being like a marketing asset to drive attendance? And where, wh-
1: how do you find that sort of the middle point? Well, it it always has to be both, I think, if you're shooting for a player like that. Um, but first, it has to fit your who you are as a, as a club on and off the field, your identity. Um, and so for us with Marcos, um, there could not have been a, a better player for us to sign. Uh, it wasn't as much a, a marketing tool as it was a credibility tool that we weren't messing around. We weren't coming into to the NASL thinking that we're, we're happy to be a minor league team. Uh, people just refused to believe it when we... When the rumors started to come out that that Marcos was considering us, people wrote that we were lying to him. Um, but Marcos understood all along exactly what it was. And as I said, Gio's been the most important part of the re- relaunch of the Cosmos. The second most important part has been Marcos Senna, uh, because he great player. Um, when he was fit with us, still an outstanding first division European player, uh, but he came in with the right attitude. He understood that um, he was going to go to some stadiums that were not good. He was going to play at Hofstra on turf um, and he had the right attitude all the time. And he just wanted to be a leader and he wanted to help. And, you know, probably my favorite story, the first year uh, we went down to Tampa and the field there was awful. It was probably six, seven inches higher at one goal than it is, was it the other, not exaggerating, different kinds of grass all over it. And, and Gio went up to him and said, you know, please just understand that this is not going to be your, your best day. And, uh, and he stopped and He said, I played barefoot on dirt in Sao Paulo. Um, this is fine. I'm happy to be here, happy to help. And he carried that attitude all the way through. Um, and you know, it wasn't talked a lot about, but he was meant to retire between the spring and fall season last year. And we had to beg him not that he didn't want to stay, but we really needed him to stay because how important he was to the organization. Uh, and his family had already moved back to Spain, but he agreed to stay. Um, and thank God, uh, because we won a championship largely because of him and his leadership, a second championship. And he went out on top with his teammates lifting him up in in the air, and every athlete wants that your last game is to you you're lifting a trophy so uh yeah, I can't express enough how important that guy's been to this club
2: in your position today. What are your biggest challenges, not so much as how it relates to the to the overall club, but specifically in in what you do in in your day to day
1: undoubtedly. Relevance within this market and, and putting butts in the seats at, at our games. This is a fickle market. Um, Nassau County has struggled supporting whatever teams played anywhere there. Um, and fighting day in and day out, it, it's not easy. It, and we have to be more creative every day, try to turn over a rock we haven't turned over yet uh always be credible and and I think that's what's so important about this team is the people that have been turned on to it will tell you that this is a good soccer team and and we play good soccer we play attacking soccer we keep the ball we play the we play the beautiful game um and I don't think there's enough of that in in the states so we've we've started to build a really loyal fan base that recognizes that so now we just need more people um, and we need it to be more consistent we've had some we've had some great games sold out amazing atmosphere uh, playing the beautiful game and people really responding but we haven't been consistent enough with that and so finding a little more consistency is extremely important and then ultimately it's having the right building to put this team in front of people um, and and we're still working very hard on that
2: yeah, it's been going on for, for a couple of years now, yeah. <laughs> a lot of time.
1: Yeah, uh, over three years. Um, and, you know, we announced it very quickly in relaunching the club before we ever kicked the ball again in the NASL. Um, and it was a lot of hype and people were really excited about it. And now it's, it being completely honest, it's a bit of an anchor on us. Um, I'm not sure when this is going to air. So hopefully um, there's good news by the, by the time this does air. Uh, I feel that it, we're finally there. Um, not that I know anything, but I, I feel it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's been a burden over the last 18 months for sure. Hard to sell tickets when someone asks you about the stadium and you say, I don't know. Um, they need to believe in your future. Uh, we've always believed in it and it's essential for our growth but it hasn't been easy telling people I don't know you just don't want to be in that position
2: Mm -hmm. what does the the structure look like uh in terms of ownership and then and personnel
1: so Seamus O'Brien's a managing partner uh he has other investors in the club some of that is I would say changing but evolving as we speak which is I think a good thing for us long term. And from the board level, so Seamus is the chairman, um, and there's representatives on the board of those other investment interests. Uh, and then it then on the next layer down. We have a senior management team of uh, six or seven people. It's a very diverse organization. Um I think uh three women on our senior management team, which is uh, by design and and kind of rare in sport. Yeah. I think uh, through the front office, a third of our staff are women. Again, much higher than the average percentage. Um, and not only diversity through men and women, but diversity through culture and language. Uh, we're, we're very representative on and off the field of the New York metropolitan area. Players from all over the world, people from all over the world. Uh, and it's a fun group to be with
2: what is the like the business model the revenue structure and I guess this is fairly similar for for most uh football clubs. What are the different verticals in terms of revenue and and what's
1: the division between those in our league um and really all of soccer in this country uh club soccer it's ticket sales and sponsorship the t v money's not anywhere near where it needs to be. Um, for us, it's non-existent. It's an actual cost at the moment. Um, so ticket sales and sponsorship, Seamus through his long relationship with Emirates, who's the largest, uh, sponsor of professional sports around the world, supporting us, um, and a great, great partner, instant credibility. And, uh, that's our biggest source of revenue. Uh, so it's sponsorship and ticket sales. And, you know we're in growth mode, basically you know this club's been around for forty plus years in some form um uh, but the last four years is in a lot of ways a growth mode of a of a startup company um so we have to put ourselves in a better position to ultimately grow the business, and that's why the stadium's so important if you know t v's an economic driver sponsorship ticket sales economic driver well your venue has to be an economic driver too and at the moment it, it's not it, again another cost center so um, all those things were investment spending now to try to try to build the club up into a position where it's stronger and, and more stable
2: are there any sectors that you see might be on tap are there are any opportunities that you see and it might even be for the for the future you know in looking at Let's say the more typical American sports, and they've been very, very good at treating them as overall commercial platforms and entertainment entities, so to speak. Um, so is there anything that you think eventually soccer can draw from, from those types of experiences?
1: Well, globally, any sport, it's television and television money. That's the driver. Um, uh, and we're seeing it happen in real time right now. The, the premier league. Is in their, their huge TV money is about to take an even bigger jump forward next year. And that is going to change European football completely. Um, the advent of the Premier League and the growth of the other big leagues has put leagues like the Dutch league, Portugal. Those leagues are, are now becoming feeder leagues. Yeah. And Scotland, Celtic, you know, Rangers, the, the, the relegation down four tiers to, for, for Rangers has destroyed Celtic too. Um, and, you know, Celtic at one point was a competitor in, in Champions League. Uh, that'll never happen again. And they have to s- switch their business model to identifying talent, growing talent and selling it. You know, it wasn't that long ago where Ajax was a threat in, in Champions League that it's impossible now. Um, so they've started to adapt how they live. Um, and it's largely because the television money is being concentrated into certain leagues. I think Serie A is in a lot of trouble. Um, I think the, the money that is pouring into the Premier League. Uh, is going to put, uh, the, the big, even AC Milan Juventus in, in a lot of trouble. Uh, and we saw it last year. How many of their players in the champions, the week leading up to the Champions League final were they being talked about leaving? And players always used to say, I want a, the chance to, to win at the highest level. But what you saw there was, well, you, you're on a great club with a huge history that's profitable. Uh, you're making good salary. Why are all you guys talking about leaving? Well, it's ultimately about money because they're going to get paid more to go somewhere else. Um, and the concentration of wealth within certain leagues, uh, I think is going to put other leagues in a, in a lot of trouble. And Italy is probably for me, the next one on, on thin ice. Uh, so really it's this sport is all about TV money. Now, of course, where does streaming fit in that in the future? Where does mobile fit in that? How is that going to be consumed in the future? Uh, people are all already making tactical moves to adjust to that when it happens. Uh, so, you know, the next generation growing up, they're cutting the cord. They don't necessarily have cable anymore. And cable was the driver for a long time on these on this TV money. So where is this money going to come from? The, part of the reason that TV money is so big in sport is because it does hold people to cable, and it holds people to a specific time of on a specific day. Um, but how this all evolves over the next few years, I, I'm not sure. But you you know the the smart money is going into into certain things, um, and a lot of it seems to be moving towards digital and and uh, mobile content.
2: How would you describe your leadership style?
1: Um, well, I tried. I'm, I'm a quiet guy in general. Uh, probably a little more intense than, than some folks would like. Um, in what sense? Very focused. Very determined. Um, with things lately, maybe not Laughing as much as, as people would like is a little, it's kind of a serious environment at the moment. But I try to lead by example in, in putting the effort in. Again, as we discussed earlier, trusting the people that work with you, um, give them the tools to, to do what they need to do, you know, have the, the backbone to stand up when things aren't going well. But really I, I try to give every department head, the opportunity to to make the decisions on their own. Um, and for the most part, that's worked for me, whether it was at Qualcomm Stadium, at Red Bull, at, at Cosmos, um, you know, try to do that. Uh, I, I understand the the role people need to know, have a face for the club. And so uh, I try to do that. I try to be very transparent with our fans. I talk openly about the decisions we make and why we make them I get emails from them all the time. I try to respond, Twitter, whatever it is, to be engaged. I think that's extremely important. Yeah, and I think it, it's going to be interesting over the next however many years to th- see how things turn and change and how we as an organization evolve.
2: Are there any things you do personally in order to, to develop and, and become an even better uh, sports executive?
1: Uh, I do read a lot, um, and it's not—I'm not reading self-help books, but I, I read a lot. I try to to learn. I've always been a good listener, and I think I—you know—not the smartest guy in the world. Don't have a, you know the greatest skills, but I think what I do bring to the table is I listen. So I have uh, empathy. I always put myself in other people's point of view, whether it's a negotiation or um, you know discipline with an employee or whatever it might be. Try to have compassion and understand. Uh, so I think I think that means a, means a lot for me. I understand that that's a strength, and then I work on my weaknesses. I was a terrible public speaker when I was in college. I mean, I remember my first speech or my first speech class. It was awful. Uh, so I try to work on those things. I'm not. How do you do it? I practice. Uh, I started when I realized that I was awful and that I had to get in front of people and talk. I start one thing. I started to do was tell jokes. I I don't really do it anymore, but I learned a few jokes and I would tell them to friends and people because I was so shy and so quiet. It forced me to be, uh, you know, the center of attention for a minute or two, uh, and I never ever wanted to be that. Now that it, my job requires me to to be the center of attention a lot, um, then you know I, I I don't do that as much, but. Uh, I do, I do try to come out of my shell and, and, um, be more of a leader, more vocal, uh, because this is what the, the job requires. But it's not natural for me. And, you know, my weekends I end up kind of quiet with just the family and not really wanting, wanting to do much because that's more my, my comfort zone.
2: What types of books is it that you read? I,
1: everything. Um, I like, I like a lot of Eric Larson books, you know, finds a fascinating story. I just read Dead Wake about the the sinking of the Lusitania, finds a fascinating story, retells it in, in a lot of what is forgotten about it, um, you know, comes alive again. Um, probably one of the most important books for me to understand how I want to be a, a leader was the Dolores good Goodwin book about Lincoln and oh, I've drawn a blank on the name of the book, uh, but his management style and bringing diverse opinions in and nece- not necessarily everybody that gets along. Um, so I, I do read a lot of nonfiction, try to squeeze in fiction. It's a little harder now with kids in, in a brutal commute to to read as much as I would like, but I've learned a lot about myself and about the world around me by reading.
2: Are there any leaders out there that that you look to or or try to pick lessons from or or, or specific
1: learnings? Well, I think the the Lincoln book um was you know really shaped my point of view. I think uh, you know it kind of was there in understanding that you have to lead from who you are. You can't really be fake. If, um, if you're not genuine, then people will pick up on that and, and they'll know. Um, so I don't try to be overly gregarious and, and completely outgoing and a, a different person than I am. Um, so that's important. Having diverse opinions I picked up from, from that book. Um, yeah, it, definitely that was, an important education for me. Do you have any mentors? Um, yes. A, a lot of them from, you know, my days of just getting out of college and working at the Meadowlands. Um, Bob Castronovo was the COO there. He gave me a lot of opportunities and uh, helped me grow and was a good leader. Ron Van Deveen was, he's five years older than me. He's now the second-in-command at MetLife Stadium. Um, and he, we were about the same age. We are sort of going through the same things. He was a little little bit older. And when I started there, he had done the same thing. He was an intern, um, did whatever job anybody asked, uh, worked his butt off to, to grow. And when I, when I got there, he sort of saw that in me. And um, we've remained friends. He's always been a, a mentor to me so those two jump out to me for sure there's uh, there were others there that I learned a lot from um but you kind of grow apart over time
2: who would you talk to when you need an outside reflection not necessarily from within the organization or so
1: nowadays it's it's my wife definitely um what really, does she do by the way uh she's actually very accomplished woman she was uh an actress at a young as a young child she uh at 4 was on Sesame Street she really she was in Les Mis at eleven on Broadway. Uh, realized she didn't want to be an actress the rest of her life, and um, basically quit in her early teens. Didn't totally quit, but stopped chasing the you know the commercials and the TV shows and the Broadway musicals. And she went to law school. Uh, didn't want to be a a, a lawyer, um, and went to Reed Smith, which is one of the largest law firms in the world and helped build uh, a marketing and events department there. Did an outstanding job was there for 14 years, really underappreciated loved, but underappreciated. I guess you stick at one location for too long. Um, they start to take advantage of you and she quit about six months ago, something like that. And is home with the kids now should definitely get back to work soon. I, I don't think a stay at home mom is in her DNA, but, uh, yeah we we've been a partnership from uh when we first met um you know we we uh well it took a while for us to get married, but we were pretty committed to each other pretty fast and uh she's definitely been my rock and and really helped me make the steps that i've made what
2: would an example be of say a challenge you encountered? at work that you then bring home
1: and bring up with her Uh, so many you know at the Meadowlands. everything was going so well my first seven years there and then there was a change at the top Bob Castronova was eventually um I don't want to say forced out but he retired um and that was very volatile and difficult and it was really you know just talking it out and how to get get through that I, I survived so many people were fired at that time uh, I survived and sort of worked my way back up there. Uh, so I, I do remember a lot of tough nights with her on that one. Um, you know, San Diego was pretty good. Uh, other than, you know, getting there, it was a, you know, the whole Enron by the sea and uh, mayor was forced out. I had five bosses in six months. Um, so that was more emotional stability. Uh, Red Bull was a very difficult place to work. Um, and her advice on how to manage people, um, how to, you know, clear my head to, to manage the people that I worked with. Um, and how to handle the folks in Austria a different way. Um, yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of stuff like that. So now it's, um, you know, I guess trying to keep me from feeling like the the whole world is on my shoulder trying to get this team going again. Uh, because it's not easy. It's, uh, it's a challenge. You know, the, the cosmos of the seventies, they were the only team in town and really the only team in the country. Well, you know, Cruyff and George Best were here, but you know, the cosmos were it and everybody looked to them. But we have two other teams with a lot more money and we're trying to stay relevant and that can be frustrating at times.
2: How do you deal with the the negative buzz when people talk about, say, they talk about the MLS as the top league, the NASL that's obviously making a a big push, not only this market, but in in a few of the other markets as well. How do you deal with I guess just negative buzz that that sometimes comes with. And people are very opinionated without many times really knowing what's going on.
1: Yeah. So for me, I remember the 25 people in the supporter section at the Red Bull game. Yeah. Um, So that always pops, that photo pops in my mind all the time. I also look at where this league was four years ago. I remember going to the NASL championship game in 2012, and there were three guys that looked like they should have been playing in a public, totally unfit and where it is now. Uh, and when we started this, everyone said, okay, I get the cosmos and I kind of get trying to create an independent league um, with independent clubs. That's a honorable approach. But what about all these other teams? It's not really going to happen. How could, how could these teams stay with you? And well, they are Tampa's, done great and sort of re-envisioning itself and bringing new players in. And um, the growth that that team has had over the last three years with the new owners, tremendous. Uh, Rio OKC, you know, they've got five World Cup players on their team. They haven't kicked the ball yet. I don't know how good they're going to be, but they've got good players. Jacksonville's done a great job. Indy, Came flying out of the gates. Ten thousand, eleven thousand people a game. Sold out. They haven't been great on the field, but you know the the other teams are really stepping up. You can see it. Uh, so the league is is much stronger now. The competition is cutthroat, and uh, this league has got to be serious about really being in the fight. You know, because we can't you know we can't be lackadaisical about this. You got to really be competitive. It's easier in some markets because you don't have anything you're really competing against. Um, But the league as a whole has to be fighting for survival. Not that it's on the verge of collapsing, but you have to have that point of view that if you're not growing and growing at a faster rate than your competition, then you're falling behind. Uh, So I think that's job number one right now. But where it started four or five years ago, where it is now is dramatic. Dramatic improvement
2: we're getting towards the end here i know we could go on for a bit um i have a set of uh, rapid fire questions sure doesn't mean that you can't spend time elaborating if you will what's the proudest moment or the biggest moment in your career you said rapid fire <laughs> <It's> <laughs> you can l- feel free it's, to elaborate you
1: know you know what it, it was uh had nothing to do with sport it was san diego uh wildfires uh we had to set up um Qualcomm Stadium as an evacuation center um and that was a monumental task and brought home the importance of community and family to me uh and I'm not a, a crier and I didn't cry but i you know, halfway through that um day three or four of of that at three o'clock in the morning, walking to my office to check messages, teared up a little bit. Um, because what it, was it that happened? I'm sorry. A massive wildfire as they happened in Southern California, and it caused the evacuation of half a million people in, in San Diego County, about 15,000 of which went to Qualcomm Stadium, and we set up the stadium as a as an evacuation center. Which it, you know, really shouldn't be. It's an outdoor stadium. Um, a lot went into that. Uh, and it was a life changing experience. Uh, the probably the proudest moment of my career. And again, had nothing to do with kicking a ball or scoring a touchdown.
2: The biggest or, or the most interesting
1: deal you've made? Yeah, it's got to be Thierry. Um, took a long time created very lasting friendships out of it. Uh I think it changed the future of of the Red Bulls and MLS and yeah, it uh it was a pretty important moment in MLS's history and Red Bulls' history. That new stadium and and that player was a defining mo- defining moment.
2: Lifting the Soccer Bowl trophy again or the US Open Cup
1: Well, I think because the word you said in that sentence, again, it would probably be Open Cup. The best player you've
2: had the pleasure to work with? Marco Senna. What makes him so special?
1: You know, by the time I got to the Cosmos, I thought I understood the sport, And I've been studying again. I didn't play it, so I've had to study it and listen and learn from people. But watching him play... I learned a whole new level of the game. And I don't think fans in this market have given him enough credit. I know our fans love him, and they saw it. Um, But New York sports fans, I don't think gave him enough credit for what he's done. And the stuff I've seen him do and his understanding of the game really brought it all together for me.
2: What advice would you give your 20-year-old and 30-year-old self?
1: 20. Um, well, I think I, I got lucky. I think I wouldn't change anything that, uh, switching my focus to sports and then making that phone call to the Meadowlands. Um, those two things, uh, luck, happenstance, serendipity, whatever you want to say. Uh, so I wouldn't change that. 30. Um, <laughs> uh, you know i would have i would it's a couple of years before getting to to san diego and there's been some tough times working for red bull and and this cosmos project that i've looked back and said i could still be sitting on the back deck of the hotel del coronado in in san diego having a beer uh instead of fighting this fight in new york um but yeah i, I don't know that i would change much what are some recommendations
2: to someone wanting to follow in your footsteps?
1: Uh, well, my big, biggest weakness by far is I don't speak a second language, particularly in this sport, and that's a, a real weakness. So, anybody, I used to tell people, uh, kids coming out of college, interns, make sure you can write, articulate, you know, communicate with people, and you don't know, send an email and look like an idiot. That's still important, but the second language, third language, if if you can get to that, uh, you're so much more marketable globally.
2: You get to have dinner with three people in the football world, past or present, and let's assume language is not a barrier. <laughs> Who would those three be and where would you take them?
1: Well, I've been lucky enough to, to have dinner with Pelé a couple of times, so I won't put him on the list. Uh, let's see, I, I would put Clive there. Um, and again, I've had experiences with him, but I've never been able to spend two or three hours just really, really going through what and that, he, sorry, and that's Clive. Clive sorry, Clive toy. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really going through that, that history of the cosmos with him. I've heard a lot of it, but to, to spend a couple hours sharing a bottle of wine uh, I probably put Clive on there. Not sure who else. Probably Messi. Um, again, just to you know, there's greatness there and understanding what what drives him and and how he sees things. And not because he's an athlete and I want to hang out with him, but because he is a relatively quiet person on you know and being one of the most famous, if not the most famous athlete in the world. Uh, So trying to figure out what makes him tick and how he, he got to that level. Uh, Third, I don't know. This is a good question. Wish I had it in advance. Could have thought about it a little more. Um, I don't know. I guess because he's um, sort of, top of mind now Johan Cruyff uh passing away recently because he had such a brilliant point of view about the sport um and I don't know that anybody would disagree with his ideal of where it could go uh but I've also heard a lot of stories that it was a very difficult personality and trying to understand how that makes how a guy like that ticks you know. How can you be so beloved but then so difficult at the same time? Uh, so I think that would be interesting. It may not be a fun dinner. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not sure that there's many that have um, changed the sport as much as Cruyff did. Again, leaving aside Pelé because I've had, had that chance a couple of times. And where would you take them? Uh, you know what? My favorite, um, restaurant here in New York, and I haven't been in a long time, is, um, La Paella, um, downtown. Don't remember the address exactly, but it's a Spanish tapas place. I, I took, I had spent two weeks in Spain and I didn't eat at a better restaurant. So I love that place and it's very neighborhoody, cool, na- just natural. You sort of relax immediately when you walk in and the sang- sangria is very good.
2: How can people either get hold of you or or find out more?
1: Well, certainly it's nycosmos.com. You you want tickets or any information on us, you can find it there. Uh, For me, uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Eric Stover, at, oh no, excuse me, Eric Stover NYC on Twitter. Do
2: you have anything you would like to recommend?
1: That's another good question. You're, you're hitting me with curveballs back to my baseball analogies. Um, sitting here with you looking at your tower of books, I, uh, reading. I wish I had gotten into it younger. I started in my early twenties. I only read for school. When I started to read for pleasure, it really opened up a world to me. So if you're not reading now, um, you should.
2: Last one. Who do you think I, I should interview?
1: Another good question. Uh, and I've talked a lot about him, but Giovanni's a fascinating character. I, I think you know him and speaks four or five languages, plays the piano. These are things that people don't really know about him.
2: I had no idea he played the piano. Yeah,
1: yeah. interesting music taste, uh, just a all-around interesting guy. And he'll have better answers on where he would want to go. Uh You need a recommendation on a restaurant. That guy's got them all in Manhattan for sure. Definitely, Geo is a, a a character that not enough people know on a more intimate level.
2: Eric, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure, and uh, best of luck with the with the season.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed it.
2: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it in iTunes or on the podcast app. Please write a review. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to email me at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com you can also link up with me via twitter it's at coffeesfootball check out the coffeeandfootball.com website there you'll find any related content and additional info on each guest this show also lives on soundcloud and acast thanks again stay tuned for next week's episode it'll go up on monday or tuesday